Living in retrospect is a bad idea, and sometimes we let our same old stories hold us back from the new adventure God has for us. But here's the truth. God wants to restory us, transforming our tales of tragedy into epics to anticipate. In this podcast, Mary DeMuth interviews people who have lived through God's powerful restory process, where they've discovered healing, joy, and a brand new perspective. So let's shed that old, painful story and find the freedom we've been longing for. The Restory Podcast starts now. The Restory Show, Season 2, Episode 10. Today's podcast is brought to you by BookLaunchMentor.com. If you're an author needing to polish your book before you launch it, or you need some coaching help and help to launch your staggering work of genius, check out the services at BookLaunchMentor.com. I've been working on that for a while, and I hope to have my course set up pretty soon. So check it out. Today, I am welcoming Ian Crone to The Restory Show, and he is the author of a lot of different books, but we're going to talk about one that he wrote about the Enneagram today. And he's got a really interesting story, and I'm grateful, and I appreciate his honesty, and I think that um, this will actually be a very informative episode for you. So without further ado, here's the show. Hey everyone, it's Mary with the Restory Show, and I am so excited to have Ian Morgan Crone on. And so he has three names, so he's really important. And <laughs> he is one of my favorite authors, and so that's what's fun about having him on is is I have really enjoyed reading his book. He's uh, been a best-selling author, and he's written books like Chasing Francis and one of my favorite memoirs, Jesus, My Father, and the CIA and You, and and he also has just written a book about the Enneagram. And a couple of weeks ago, he sat down with me and tried to help figure me out, which I think is still a work in progress, but I'm really grateful for that. He lives in Nashville, Tennessee. And because he lives there, then of course, he's also a songwriter. So <laughs> Ian, welcome to the program. Glad to have you here. Thank you so much. It's a delight. We're going to talk a little bit of just about um, the listeners is going to get to know you a little bit. So tell us a little bit about how you grew up and uh, your background story. Yeah, so I, I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, about 30 miles from New York City. It's a, it's a very affluent suburb. And most of the people or many of the people who live there uh, work on Wall Street. They take the train every day and head to Wall Street. And um, I grew up in a home with a, a pro really a chronic alcoholic father who was a very, very troubled person. And he was uh, abusive, as you can imagine. And that experience uh, really left a profound mark as a human being. And I actually wrote my memoir as a, a way of examining that relationship between a father and a son, in particular my relationship with my father, because I think people are interested and, and fascinated by that whole child-father relationship. And there's a special quality to it, as there is with the mother. But, so, but it has a, a particular resonance, right, with people. And um, I also tell the story in my memoir, and I will share it as my own story now, about my own struggle with addictions, my own recovery from alcoholism, although I don't go diving deep into my journey with that. I, I just saved until the end. But And really about now, for me, I've 
seen the years since I, I closed out that memoir um, as a young man as really the journey toward learning how to love myself, how to love other human beings, uh, how to allow myself to be loved, and learning to love God. And uh, I guess I could also, with the exception of God, replace that word love with compassion. I like that because I think love has lost its meaning in our world today. And it's one thing to say, oh, I'm going to practice love toward myself. But another thing to say, I'm going to practice compassion toward myself. <laughs> That's, yes. It just makes it sound better. And it gives it a little more teeth, I think, because I think we're not very kind to ourselves, particularly if we grew up in a difficult environment. We we want to be free from that environment, but somehow we still use the same words from the past that are not compassionate to ourselves. Yeah, I mean, I think that healing only takes place in in the in really in the ecosystem or in the climate of compassion. It doesn't doesn't happen in a a climate of shame. It, it just doesn't work. So, as you look back on your life with your dad, how did that affect you when you? you know, deciding to get married, and then when you became a father? My early, I'd say in my 20s and 30s, so much of that season of my life was a time of trying to unwind some of the messages and beliefs I picked up growing up in my family and trying to to defrost, uh, to try and replace misdirected desires and and beliefs with new ones and so gosh it was a it was both a glorious time and a, and a, and a time of great struggle to actually to restory myself actually to use a phrase from from your vernacular um i think that to recognize that the narrative that you've been living uh, uh believing is true the narrative that you tell yourself about who you are and the and how you, that you tell others about who you are, and that explains the way the world is to you. When that's wrong, you're mm. in trouble. <laughs> and you, and but the good news is, is that it can also just be a first draft. Mm. I like that. Uh, so anyhow, I was writing another draft. <laughs> <laughs> and so your first draft that you're writing in your 20s and 30s, what did you believe about yourself that you finally discovered that were lies about yourself that? you'd had to kind of unpack or defrost as to use your word. Yeah, boy, I, there's, there's, well, you know, as, as you know, there's, there's never just one, but I, I, you know, one of them was that there was something uh, essential in my makeup that was missing. And I didn't quite, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what to name it. I couldn't say, Oh, it's this or that. It was just this vague sort of sense that there was something wrong with me that, uh, until I found out what it was and reclaimed it or, you know, or, or, or made it my own, I'd, I would never fit in in the world. I would always be different. I would always be separate. And, you know, I would therefore, you know, look at other people and think and really kind of feel envious, uh, like, geez, they look so normal and happy <laughs> and, and, like, and all together. And yet, you know, I, I feel like there's something just off a of true north with me, you know. And so I, that was one thing that I've, I've had to really change the narrative of and, and begin to realize that, Ian, there's nothing missing. You know, like you're, 
you're all here. You got all your toes and your fingers inside, you know. And uh, uh, but I think that's just a product of for people who grew up in in homes like I did. You know, you feel like somehow or another that maybe God has forsaken you. You know, you got ditched in this lousy family, you know, or uh, there must be something wrong with you or you wouldn't have been, you know, this placement would not have happened yes. <laughs> if, you'd, if you'd been a good boy or something. You know, right? Floating around you, in the heavenlies. Yeah. I'm sending exactly. him to that family. <laughs> yeah, right. I got it. Why did I get in that line? Um, <laughs> so anyhow, that was one big one is that, yeah, that there was something fundamentally flawed about and that it was my fault and that I should be ashamed of it. Mm. And growing up in an alcoholic family, did you make a vow to yourself? Did you watch your father and think, I am never going to do that? And then if you did that, then uh, when you struggled as an adult, how did that make you feel? Well, I don't actually, I don't con- remember, uh, you know, a moment when I consciously thought I'm, I'm never going to do that. I mean, I think I, I took it for granted that I certainly wouldn't want to. Right. You know? uh, but I, I don't remember having that thought. And I only said it because I actually have a friend of mine who can remember a specific moment when uh, in an alcoholic family when he thought to himself, I will never be that person. You know, and I don't I don't have that memory. I, I think though one of the most beautiful redemptive parts of my life has been to see my children grow up in a home where you know, they've, they felt safe. They felt loved. I feel like I, honestly, like I've, in as much as human beings can, I feel like I've been a, uh, a good enough father, you know, mm-hmm. not a perfect father, but a good enough father. And I'm, I'm so happy with how my, my children have emerged as, as human beings and that they love each other and they, they love their home. That's a, that's no small thing for me. I love that. And I, I can completely relate to that because I grew up in a very similar kind of environment. And now I, I almost, I, I remember it back then, but it's like the, the beauty of what's happened now has kind of trumped it. You know, the, mm. just the beauty of the family now and that you don't have to be enslaved to the past. You don't have to recreate what you had. You could forge a new story and do something new. How would you say that your relationship um, with your wife has enabled that to, I know it's a partnership in raising kids. So how has that been helpful in your restoring process of your family? Right. Well, thank you for mentioning the fact that my wife was involved in the raising of the children. And, um, it's always good. Uh, she, she, she would be happy that you, you advocated for, for her, her role in it all. Um, you know, my wife is a remarkably kind uh, human being. She's one of the very few people I'd say is virtually guileless, hmm. you know, I mean, which is actually, which is not helpful when you need her to lie on your behalf. I mean, she's a lousy liar, <laughs> um, but she, she's, uh, she's very kind and patient and um, I'm very complicated. <laughs> I'm an artist. I think in those categories, I see the world that way and you know, my highs are highs and my lows are low, you know, and, and she's a very steady Eddie in the middle of it all. She really created an environment for me where it, you know, I could flourish and, uh, and she did it very selflessly and without, I guess, really asserting her own priorities as, as often as she, as she might have, you know? And, uh, so 
in our marriage, I, I'd say that, you know, we've been empty nesters now for about, I don't know, four or five years. And we really sort of hit a crisis. I mean, as many couples do when you, your, your house empties, but you kind of look at each other and you go, well, now who are you again? And, <laughs> and, oh, and by the way, do I still like you? I mean, you know, and there were, you know, there were places where we've, we've struggled and we've, we've worked hard to, to find each other again. And, and, and I'll just, it's a long answer to your question, but I, I would say that just in closing that I think our marriages, we tend to think of them in very, very uh, sort of shallow terms, you know, and I, I actually think that our, our marriages are the theater in which we work out our own salvation, hmm. you know, like, like the person we're married to is both our best friend and our worst enemy. (laughs) Right. I mean, what we're doing here is we are facing, they are making us face our junk. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, that makes them both our, both our best friend and our worst enemy often at the same time. And, and yet I think we're called to, to stay in it because they are helping refine us and make us more beautiful. So when you met her for the first time, did you realize it's about her? I mean, we, we see the romantic shows about you complete me and all of that. Um, did you realize she was the yin to your yang? Did you realize that you would make a partnership that was, you know, productive and helpful like that? Or did you just, how did that work out when you first met her? Yeah, well, we met when we were in college and, uh, so we were young and I don't think I felt it was anything more than dating, you know, and, she and I dated for a good long while before we, we started to to think about about getting married. She was a couple of years younger than I was, and that that made for a, a, a prolonged time of relationship as well. I I don't think I had any sense. I had, I don't think you, I could have guessed where where we were going and what what our lives would be like thirty years later, twenty twenty five years later. And she she and I have been we've been around the block. We, we've done. We've done, seen, and enjoyed a lot of good things and, and endured a lot of struggles. I think we can all say that. It's, it's, an, amazing, it's an amazing thing and an amazing relationship, to, as you said, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So you've, you've written a book about the Enneagram, and when you started talking about feeling like there was something missing from you, and then you described yourself as artistic and, you know, kind of all over the place. And uh, there is a personality type within the Enneagram that fits you. I'm curious what caused you to kind of go deeper into this, maybe explain to the listeners what this is, so they don't think we're a bunch of weirdos, and then kind of the impetus for writing that book. Yeah, wow. So that's a, that's a very big question. <laughs> it is. Um, uh, so the Enneagram is a ancient personality typology, right? Or personality system. It teaches that there are nine basic personality styles or core personality styles in the world. Uh, one of which each of us gravitates toward in childhood to really protect us from, from harm, from the inevitable wounds and losses that we all experience in childhood. Each of these personality styles, if you actually, to, to again, return to your theme, kind of represents a story, right, that each of us inhabits that helps us move through the world and understand or interpret what we think the world is like, right, and how we should act in it in order to make friends, to get our needs met, to please our parents, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So 
uh, we all need a personality. The Enneagram would not, <laughs> is, not, is not designed to, to say that your personality is bad or to delete it and get a new one. What it really does is help you identify what it is and then to disidentify with those dimensions of your personality, which worked in childhood to keep you safe and get what you needed, but in adulthood are now actually uh, more imprisoning than freeing that uh, are now leading to all kinds of repetitive self-defeating patterns of behavior and self-limiting ways of seeing and being in the world. And that offers a growth path, you know, for each of these types to, to do just that. That's about as simple as I could get. It was pretty good. Yeah, you did a great job. And I, I love what you said about coping mechanisms, because I, I think um, I was talking yesterday to our life group at church, and I was saying that the very thing that protected me as a child, which was, if no one's going to protect me, I'm going to have to protect me, actually didn't turn out well as an adult in my relationship with Christ, because then I'm in control all the time, and I don't trust anyone or him. <laughs> and so there's these ways of coping that were very beneficial to protect you as a child, but are not so great um, if you want to live into adulthood and mature. That's absolutely right. I think that our stories, right, that we tell ourselves as children, Carl Jung actually said this, so be able to, and this is going to be a complete, I'm going to, I'm going to absolutely wreck his beautiful <laughs> way of saying this, but he essentially says that, you know, what keeps you alive in the, in the morning of life will kill you in the evening, mm. right? And so I think that's what the Enneagram does. It says, look, these things work great when you were a kid. They, they helped you get through. But as an adult, they're limiting you and holding you back. And this is important. They really have covered over your authentic self. You know, that, that your personality has become so layered and complex and thick. And actually, the more trauma you experience, the thicker it is that your true self has been obscured. You've sort of lost contact with it. So one of the goals of it would be to reconnect with your truest and best self. That's lovely. And so you have um, partnered with someone to write this book about the Enneagram. And what is your, what is your and your co-author's goal? Or what are your main goals after someone has finished reading that book? What do you hope that they will say or what will change in their lives? Yeah, well... Here's the deal. I was partly in, inspired to write this um, when I came across a quote by Calvin. Hmm. And it, it, it just sort of was it's sort of a little, it piqued my interest. He said, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Hmm. And I thought that's a pretty, in fact, that's the opening statement, I think, in the, in the Institutes. Now, I'm not a Calvinist, but I would imagine if you open up with that kind of a line, you know, that which follows is probably, you know, a working out of it, right? In right. Part. So, I mean, that's a bold statement, and I think it's absolutely true, and it was not what I was told when I came into the world of faith. I was told that self-knowledge or the pursuit of self-knowledge was the same thing as self-absorption, that my entire focus should be placed on knowing God and knowing God only. And I'm telling you, the, the wreckage that that causes in people's lives is really inestimable. They go into marriages. I mean, think about this. Becoming a parent becoming a spouse, becoming someone in the workplace who doesn't know themselves. I mean, I'm just telling you, you're, you're just banging guardrail to guardrail through life without that kind of knowledge, both because you're more beautiful than you realize and because you don't know the places where self-deceit is most operative. You, you don't 
you don't know where you most need grace. And you're, you're a danger to yourself and community when you don't have <laughs> self-awareness. So we want to help. We hope that people come out of the book going, okay, I got a little bit of a handle or more clarity about who I am, what's best about me, and what's worst about me. And I've got a little bit of a growth path to kind of begin to work. I hate to use that word work, but to begin to get into the game of, of bringing my life into alignment with what, what God has for me. The, the book is called The Road Back to You. And one of the things that my husband and I have, have um, taught before to people who want to grow in Christ is that the, the people who tend to grow the most are the most self-aware. And that actually self-awareness is one of the greatest hallmarks of the Christian life. It may not be defined in Scripture quite with those words, but I think it's true. We need to know what's going on in there and what makes us tick. And as we do, um, we can learn to be, as you mentioned before, more compassionate to ourselves. But another thing I think that happens as we know ourselves is, you know, we, we begin to love ourselves, but we also can love other people. And so how does knowing personality types or knowing that someone is different from you, how does that help you love them more? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. Because that's another one of the main goals. In fact, that's the last, I shouldn't say it, but it's the, it, the last chapter of the book is, is very much dedicated to this idea that really you can't love someone until you understand them. Not, and, that, and that everyone sees the world through a different pair of glasses. You know? we, we all have a singular biography. We all um, carry uh, our own different you know, kinds of wounds and bruises. And uh, until we understand each other, actually, we are um, apt to love each other in a way that actually can do damage to each other. Now, we would think that's a strange thing to say, right? That you could actually love someone in a way that could hurt them, but you can love someone wrongly and hurt them, even though your intentions are very good. So, you know, we hope that what it does is it, it helps people grow in compassion because they realize, you know, we're all broken. We all see the world a different way. And I, I'm beginning to learn how to appreciate difference, uh, to begin to recognize that we all have a part to play, even though, you know, it's, we don't, because we, don't, we have different gifts, we see the world differently. But it has, for me personally, softened and gentled my heart toward people who are so different than I am and, and, and also, I mean, bother the heck out of me or, you know, it, it's been a tremendous help in that regard. So what kind of advice would you give to someone who um, hasn't even opened the book yet, but they're curious about kind of what's the first step in figuring out who you are or what's something that they can do to, to begin to do that? Oh boy. You know, I think that's so dependent uh in some ways on on you know what kind or type of person you are. Right. You know, I'm I would probably answer that uh for myself that um getting to to know myself has been through in many ways through art, right? Mm. Through through great works of literature, but also through counseling and you know, I'm I'm a person who's very much in touch with their own feelings, uh, almost to a fault. And self exploration comes very naturally to me. 
Um, in fact, I, I am one of those people who has to watch out as a younger man, not so much now, but as a younger man about being self-absorbed and a little bit too self, self-referential. And I, I think one thing just is important about getting to know yourself. I don't think you can do it alone. We're mysteries. And, by, and, and so if you are a mystery, it, it, it literally would mean that you're inside of something. You can't examine something you're in the middle of, right? You, so you actually need an outside observer or loving witness to your experience who can say, this is what is going on, or this is, help, let me help you parse what, what's going on in your interior world. And so whether that's a spiritual director or a counselor or I don't think it's a great thing to place that burden on a spouse, you know, exclusively. I think you, we, we need other people uh, to do that with us. But I just don't think you can, can underdo, undertake that task uh, by yourself, nor are we meant to. I think that's the beauty of community and why we need it so much, because I, I think you're right. I think left to ourselves, we could become self-absorbed. But when we have other people that we're rubbing shoulders with, they can see things, like you said, on the outside. I think that's a great piece of advice is, is to keep cultivating those relationships and to keep seeking after the heart of other people, because they're also going to be a benefit to you in learning about who you are. So in the past year, I'll ask my last restory question. In the past year, how has God restoried you? Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, boy. Last year, how has God restored me? Well, I can I, I'd say two ways. Sure. Um, one is, I realized, you know, I had a a very compressed amount of time to 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 write this book and it was a it was daunting to try and take something as complicated as the enneagram is which you know a lot of authors take 500 pages to work out and it's very technical and but they really turned it into something that was a winsome introduction that you could you know get enough from if you that you could move the needle positively in your life without having to read another book you know about it that's the direction you wanted to go, or it would serve as the vestibule <laughs> into a larger house of, you know, exploring the Enneagram. But it was so pressurized that it really, for me, got me in touch again with just how fragile I am. Now, I don't want you to hear this stuff as being, you know, a, or I don't want your listeners to think that I'm some sort of like depressed guy <laughs> who had this terrible childhood. I mean, really, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, my wife would say, I'm, I'm, or I think my friends would say that I'm actually quite a cheerful is not the right, but, but I'm a very hopeful person. You know, I really am. I'm a very hopeful person, but I'm a person who's also in touch with what's happening in my interior world. And I was amazed at, at how insecurities surfaced again and a cracks appeared that I thought had been, you know, patched up once and for all. And, um, gosh, it, it, was fascinating to me. And what, what's good, though, here's the difference now at my age, is there was no shame in that. There's no, there's no guilt in that. There's no sense of anger at myself that these things still exist. If anything, and I partly, partially credit the Enneagram for this, I just felt like, oh, there it is, you know. I, and I have rich compassion for the source of those things. And uh, so that's one thing. How's that? That's one story is that I, one of the things that God has reminded me about, one story is that, oh, by the way, you know, this stuff doesn't actually 
go away. I think that's a, <laughs> I think that's some sort of fairy tale that people have in their minds that, oh my gosh, if I just do this work, all these things are going to go away. Well, they're not. What's going to go away is um, if you if you do your work and, and you're faithful, uh, is you're just going to stop believing them. You know, you're just going to stop uh, letting them run your life because they're in the darkness. They're hiding, uh, you know, running the show without you knowing it. And then I'd say the second thing is I watched my first daughter. My da- I have two daughters and a son. I watched my, I walked my middle daughter down the aisle this summer. Mm. And um, gosh, what a, you know, you just have moments in your life when you, you realize that you've been so graced. Mm. Uh, you've been so, you've been given this story and with all of its, vicissitudes and vagaries and glories and and i can remember times as a young man when i despaired and you know i understand why now in the roman catholic tradition you know despair is a sin because it it presumes you know the end of the story Mm. when you when you despair it's like okay i i know this is ending badly and you know guess what you don't (laughs) You can be discouraged, you know, but to despair means you, you know more than God about how it ends. And my story, at least as it is now, has, is a whole lot better than I would have ever imagined in those despairing moments as a young man growing up in a, in a, in a hard home. I love that. And I think that's really important. I remember the, um, uh, an episode of Anne of Green Gables where Marilla tells Anne to despair is to turn your back on God. And, and I think I like your definition a little bit better is just to say that you are proud enough to know the ending without really knowing the ending. And you're right. I mean, emotions will go up and down, but eventually, you know, we know the end of the story as Christians, as Christ followers. We know that there's a new heavens and a new earth. There's a new kingdom. There's, there is glory to come. And so we can, even when things don't look good, it, it will come. And I, and when you walk your daughter down the aisle and you experience that kind of grace, it's, it, it is those moments that help us remember that life is not as dark as we thought it was. And, and not to negate the fact that life is dark because, you and I both walked those paths before, and we know what that's like, and we know man's hum- inhumanity to man, so we understand that. Yeah, and by the way, in the interest of transparency, uh, that idea that that I just sort of rolled out about despair is it may be either G.K. Chesterton or or J.R.R. Tolkien who first um, introduced me to that idea. So you know, I don't I don't like to do stuff without proper attribution. <laughs> that's good. You're a scholar at heart. Well, uh, Ian, thank you so much for being on the Restory podcast. I really appreciate it. And I know the listeners are really going to appreciate your story. So thank you so much for being on. Thanks, Mary. It was really great. Thanks for listening to the Restory show. Do you mind if I pray for you? Lord, thank you that we all have different ways that we do things. And we're all so beautifully fashioned by you. And we're so greatly unique from each other. And I pray that you would help us to see our differences, not as things to divide over, but as things to love each other for. Help us to accept our own shape and to find out more information about ourselves so that we can love you more and love other people more. Thank you for restoring us and giving us a brand new story. I pray for those who are struggling today that that you would speak life, you would speak hope, you would speak peace into their lives. And where there's turmoil and um, combustion and frustration and arguments, Lord, I just pray that there would be 
your peace and your tranquility in the midst of that? And would you just intersect our lives and come in and do something brand new that we're not expecting? We're so grateful for you. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to know more about today's show with links and extended information, please go to marydemuth.com, Restory 2-10, and may you live a brand new story this week.